Well, thank you, DJ and team, for leading us. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Paul's letter to Titus in your blue pew Bible. should be 998. And I invite you to turn there because it's important for us to actually read the Word of God and let the Word of God be our authority, even this morning, even as Pastor Paul led us through the order of service, having us in the Scriptures. And now we're going to read from Paul's letter to Titus, chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. This is the very Word of God. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Would you pray with me now? Almighty God, we approach you with reverence and awe, even as we have been brought into your presence by your word, by songs of praise, by being oriented to you in prayer. And we do ask now that you would draw us to yourself. Holy Father, guide us that we would look upon your Son, even Jesus Christ, the risen one, and we would do so in the power of the Spirit. We thank you that in Christ all things hold together. And we do thank you that we can all look to Christ this morning. Lord, we do ask your forgiveness for our deep rebellion and the ways that we have turned away from Christ even this week. But we ask that now, by the word of Christ, you would draw us to yourself, Holy Father. Fill us with your Spirit. Wound and heal us. Convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment. Lord, I pray for the weak for the discouraged, for the wounded and the abused, I I pray that today you would lift their eyes to look away from their pain and that they would look to you, Heavenly Father, and they would look to you for care and for comfort in Jesus Christ. Lord, we do pray that you would give us all your spirit, that we would turn from sin and that you would propel us forward in courage and in faith to persevere in the faith, to turn away from idols, that we would seek your face and we would live for Christ in this dark generation. Lord, we pray for churches around the world as they seek to herald the gospel. I pray for Pastor Evgeny Bakmuski in Moscow Bible Church. Lord, even as The the nation of Russia is maligned because of its evil leader, Vladimir Putin. We do thank you for the witness of Christians in Russia. 
We pray that you would cause their ministry to prosper and flourish. We also pray for brothers and sisters in the Netherlands today. We pray that even the many Christian farmers who are concerned about having their livelihoods taken away, Lord, we pray that you would protect them from the tyranny of evil men. We pray that you would help them to bear witness to the gospel, even in the midst of great turmoil, even in that land. Lord, we pray even for our own city of Calgary. Lord, we see great wickedness going on even during this stampede week. We see all of the, even if it's unseen, all of the human trafficking that goes on, the many pregnancies that are unwanted. Oh Lord, we pray for mercy. We pray that for even many of these preborn children that are conceived this week, we pray that they would come to term and that they would have blessed and full lives. Lord, we pray for mercy on this city. We do thank you that there can be things like rodeos and celebrations to enjoy, but we do pray, Lord, that in your mercy, you would help us not to then focus on ourselves, but that every good thing we have would cause us to turn to you. And even now, Lord, as we are gathered here in this very special time, at this special place, in this special gathering, we pray that you would meet us with your word and your spirit to glorify your own name. So we pray that even in this event of hearing your word, we pray that you would be glorified. Come and meet us now. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It is the last day of Stampede, and maybe many of you are glad that it's going to be over, and you're going to get around the city. Uh, One thing I like about the Stampede, especially the rodeo, which is mostly the only thing I care about, is, is it's actually a sporting event where the guys are guys and the girls are girls. Not to be too facetious, but, you know, there's men's events and there's women's events, and they're both awesome. Uh, but they're different, and just to recognize that. But that's, even to say that, like it shouldn't even be a thing, like it shouldn't even be striking at all, but it just shows how unsound our world has become, how, how sick and poisoned it's become, how even to make claims or seek, or seek to solicit answers, I should say, as one one guy has done in a documentary to ask the question, what is a woman? Or what is a man? That even such questions, if to, to elicit a response, brings puzzlement and confusion. And David Wells, a guy I met a long time ago, he wrote a book 17 years ago, and I think he's talking about today. It's like he's talking about current events. And he, he said this, In the postmodern world, there is no authority which is outside and above each person. No center in which the whole holds together. 
no way to assess this unhinged world from outside of itself. And all that remains is the cacophony of opinions, the coercion of fashion, and the confusions of a broken world. End of quote. That's kind of what we have going on. It's just opinions everywhere. It's just the trends and fashions. Whatever the latest hashtag is. Even the propaganda hashtag. And just confusion everywhere. My kids went over to the library the other day. And it had material at the public library that was utterly confusing and confused about biological sex. The two sexes, male and female, is confused, offering any number of genders. And so there was confusion in Crete, too. And that's where Paul was writing to Titus to deal with the ministry on this island. And Titus had a job. And his job was to teach, to keep on teaching to teach in that island, to teach the Christians, to teach the churches. And he had to teach because all was unsound around him. It was a very unsound, unhealthy, sick, poisonous culture. But the Christian communities were all disordered. The churches were all out of sync and they were unhealthy and poison too. And so he had to teach in such a way that he had to bring health. They were sick and they needed health. They needed medicine. They needed what would produce good health. And so Paul tells Titus in Titus 2.1, As for you, You, in contrast to all these false teachers, in contrast to all these worldly folks that have accommodated to a sick culture, you, you got to be different. As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. He had to teach truths that that would not only be good and right, but that would produce health. They would be life-giving truths. One of the things is we're just singing there. And we're, we're singing, you know, Wesley's Amazing Love or singing some of these hymns. And I just thought, ah, yes, the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ who lived and died on the cross and rose from the dead and who offers salvation to all who believe in him. That is life-giving It gives life. It's not just a set of rules. It's not just religious performance. It is life-giving. It is sound in the sense, like, like I've said before, a horse that is healthy is called sound. He's sound. And if he's unhealthy, if he's crippled, he's unsound. No, no. The gospel is sound, healthy, health-giving doctrine. And that is what Titus was challenged to teach. And so, at this point in chapter 2 in the letter, Paul wants 
Titus then to apply this sound teaching derived from the gospel, and he wants to apply it to the nitty-gritty of everyday life, the lives of men and women in their workaday world. And so this message and this section that we're getting the message from is very much in terms of application. It's getting into the details of how to live. And the intent, of course, in that application for Titus is to bring health. Health into how men live. Health into how women live. And to grow men and women in such a way that they will grow in virtue. That they will be virtuous. That their health will be such that it will be attractive and true. And the result will be no longer acting as if God is not outside and above and holding all together, but acting as if He is. That God is outside of us, over us, and He is holding all of our lives together. And we live our lives in light of that truth. And so that is what Paul is directing Titus to do, is to give that kind of health-giving teaching. And I just say, if you're here and you're coming from an unhealthy life, unhealthy relationships, unhealthy place where your thinking is, an unhealthy belief system, well, you've come to the right place because there is health to be had here. There is health in a restoration of your very soul that you won't be able to find anywhere else. And so remarkably then, what we're going to look at is very simply, we're just going to look at men and women, which seems strange when there's questions on, you know, what is a woman? What is a man? But we're going to look at these, and I think then they're going to actually cut across many of our, many of certainly the world's messages, but even maybe subtly what we've imbibed even in the church. And so we read then in verse 2, it says, Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. We'll start there. You see then with that statement that Paul is telling Titus that older men are to set the example for the whole church. They are to set the example for the whole church. Older men are to provide the template or the pattern which all the others in the church are to resemble. Now, when he refers to older men, you might think, oh, well, is he referring to the elders only, like as in the office of the pastor, overseer, elder? Well, it's actually a different word, and so it's referring to older men. Now, as, as well, this, this isn't necessarily referring to oldness in terms of age, but in terms of maturity. Mature men. They're not pastors. They're just, they're just men in the church who are mature. Now, they might have gray hair, but I've met lots of guys with gray hair that are fools. Right? Uh, and there's younger men that are, what do we say? They're wise beyond their years. So that can be the case too. But these are mature men. And what do they look like? Well, they look like Christ. 
And then as others wish to look like Christ, they're going to see these older men, these mature men, and they'll see them as basically a local representation of Christ's likeness. They'll see it in these older men, first of all. And that's what Paul intends for Titus to teach at Crete, because Crete, very likely if we kind of mirror read it, they didn't have older men acting in this way. So that's how the churches should be in that manner. Now, why do I say that these guys should be kind of a model or a template? Well, there's a repetition of a phrase in this passage that sets all the groups that follow in a pattern of imitation. And it's the word likewise. Likewise. You'll see it in verse 3. Older women, likewise. Uh, Then you go down, verse 6 even, likewise urge the younger men and so forth. So, only the older men are exempt from this word. Because they have then this serious task of setting the example. They're not doing it likewise in comparison and imitation of someone else. They have to blaze the trail. So when you see a man in his mid-twenties, or his mid-thirties, or his mid-fifties, or his mid-seventies, and you look at him, a Christian man, you, you should be able to see then the growing evidence of a perspective on life that is steady, that has gravity, that projects dignity, and that is, I would say, completely self-governed. And that's just, a, that's just a different way of saying what, what Paul is saying here. You know, he, he's going to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, and then he goes on and speaks of then this soundness. So he's, he's going to have this steadiness, this gravity, projecting a certain dignity, and completely self-governed. Now, the result of this when that, when that man is like that, the result is that when you look at such a man, you'll see that there's a soundness. Again, this soundness, not about noise, not about, not about something vocal, but, but actually about health. That's the idea. There is a health, a health-giving virtue in his life. There's a health-giving virtue in his life. And specifically... You see it there at the end of verse 2. He exemplifies a life-giving virtue in three areas. It says he is sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Or we could put it this way. There is is a virtue expressed in faith, a virtue in love, and a virtue in consistency. Now, think of his faith. What does such a man look like? Well, his faith looks with reliance upon the true Christ. What he doesn't look upon, he's not looking at fads, he's not looking at fashions, he's not looking at quirky ideas, he's not into pet doctrines. Those are all things that older men can get drift into where they actually aren't looking to Christ, they're looking to hobby horses and other stuff. 
No, this man, his faith is repeatedly resting by the Spirit upon Jesus Christ and Christ alone to the glory of God the Father. There's kind of this exclusivity where you just see his highest priority is to make sure he keeps coming back to Jesus, not giving his best energies to all kinds of other quirky hobbies. And you know what I'm talking about. Because sometimes old guys, they, you know, they get off on stuff. They can get distracted and fixated on things. Sometimes it's a hobby. Sometimes it's, you know, political theory or political action or conspiracy theory or whatever it might be. Not these guys. These older men, they keep coming back to Jesus. And so then there is a virtue in terms of how he is sound in faith. There's a health there. But as well we see here, there's a soundness in his love. His love is virtuous. It's virtuous because he loves what is good. He loves God first of all, you know, above anything. He doesn't get bored with God. It's a great temptation for everybody here, but especially for older men, that after a while, after they've been a Christian for a while, they get bored with God. And then they get interested in other things. Now, he doesn't get bored with God. He doesn't fall out of love with God. He loves God because God first loved him. He loves the goodness of God in the land of the living, Psalm 27, 13. And so such a man, he loves righteousness. He loves it. It's not just that he hates wickedness. He, he hates wickedness, but that's not it, because that's easy. It's easy to point out what is wrong. It's easy to say, oh yeah, well that's all awful. But how different than to love righteousness. And so that when he sees godliness, it's magnetic to him. He's like, oh wow, look at that. Look at this godly character. Look at how there's godliness being cultivated in this younger person. Isn't that awesome? Oh, isn't, wasn't that a good and godly sermon? Wasn't that great? They're just attracted to that. And it's all because they want to praise God. They love God, and so everything that is toward God draws them in. They have virtue in their love, a soundness in their love. He wants to praise and celebrate what brings glory to God, and so he loves God's people because they bring glory to God. He, he loves his church because that's where God's glory is manifest. If he's married, he loves his wife. She's not his roommate. They don't just coexist. He loves her with a special love that is exclusive to her. And he knows that that exclusive love glorifies God. And so he has virtue and health in his love. But thirdly, even under this heading, his healthy virtue... It's consistent. It's consistent. He says, 
sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. That's just being consistent. He's not perfect. He's not in heaven. But the general pattern of his life is a consistent soundness. Consistently healthy. Not perfectly healthy because you're not resurrected. You're not in heaven. But, but there is just this steady consistency of virtue. It's interesting, not to pick on other churches, but of, of one group of churches, I've noticed in a lot of Pentecostal churches, I've met lots of Pentecostal guys, and often what strikes me is that sometimes the guys, they'll be super zealous, but I rarely see this consistency of soundness in, in their lives. And so instead, what they have is this roller coaster of super high intensity, super spirituality on fire for Jesus, and then they crash into deep sin and then feel really bad and confess it and, and up, 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 up. Oh, yeah, and praising God, and it's all, you know, super intense, and then crash again. And it's not just Pentecost churches, there are all kinds of different churches that can be that way where the men in those churches. But, but they lack then that soundness in steadfastness, in consistency. But you see, why is this important? Because the older men must be examples. And what's clear here is that this kind of healthy example can't be faked. You, you can't be a phony. It's, you, you, you can't just say the right things, right? That's, that's the tricky thing today. There's so many fakers and charlatans and people trying to manipulate and do stuff. They can come into a church and, I mean, all it takes is reading the website and they can drop a few phrases and sound like they're an insider. But meanwhile, they might have some ulterior motive. And, not, and that what they say and how they live might be completely different. So we all have to be on our guard. But this kind of man, you can't fake that. You can't fake it. A healthy example has to be real. It's, 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 it's virtue that comes from the inside out. So I would just say, if there's anybody here, any of the, any of the men here, if you're faking it and you think you're getting away with it, you're not. People might be kind to you. They might be giving you undeserved favor. But you're not kidding anybody. Because you're, if you're faking it, you're not one of these guys. And especially, I would say, because this is a big problem today, churches that then take some guy who says the right stuff or got the gift of the gab, but he's faking it and he doesn't have this virtue, and then they view him as a leader because he can talk. They put him forward as an example, and yet the guy lacks these virtues, or worse, he's an abuser or an exploiter, then that church and its leaders are in sin. And that actually is the problem in the churches. We can expect there's going to be sinners coming into the church, but that's why you need healthy leadership to then identify that and to confront that and correct it. And that's what Paul's doing with Titus here. He's saying, Titus, you've got to correct 
all this false teaching and this phony virtue, and you want to build up older men so they have virtue in all of these ways. And just think then, and I think it's the case here in this church, I hope it is, but how different it is when a church has older men, like I think are the case in this church, older men who are a picture of health. Spiritual health, I mean. Some of the guys, myself included, probably could work out more, but that's a different issue. But sound in every virtue. Not perfect, not in heaven yet, but they're just sound. They're just steady. And that soundness, if you have a church like that, and there's older men who have that soundness, you should thank God for such examples because you are enjoying a rare privilege because there aren't that many places around in the world where you can find that. But that's what we should aspire to, older men having this kind of virtue. But secondly, beginning in verse 3, we see that the church is not made up only of men. Surprise, surprise. Uh, In fact, you know, the way that church literature talks about Titus 2, you would think it only spoke about women, since it's so frequently referenced in connection to women's ministry and so forth. But but it's really important as we look at verse 3 to see that Paul establishes a clear pattern for the older women to follow. It's a simple pattern of godliness, but they're to be disciples of Christ, and their pattern will follow the older men's godly pattern in the church. And this is not a hierarchy of worth, but it's just an order that is complementary. And so this is the first, likewise. Look at it there in verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, Behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine, there to teach what is good. So there's the likewise. So we can expect then, with the likewise, we can expect that mature women are supposed to have similar virtues as the mature men in the church. And so that's exactly what we get in that list. So reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. We'll, we'll just look at these three first. So these three areas... These three areas that Paul uses to map out the example which mature women should have. Now, the first is being reverent in behavior. Reverent in behavior. This is a sort of decorum. It's kind of an older word, but it's, it's a manner or a way of acting. It's, it's a style of behavior. It's a way of conducting themselves. It's not just, well, they, they do or don't do precise certain things. There's also a style or manner to it. They're reverent in behavior, ESV has. The King James says, in behavior as becometh holiness. It be, as becometh holiness. In other words, it's, it's not just beliefs. They don't just have right beliefs, but they have right actions And it's even a style of acting. And so there's a certain decorum, a certain style. That's how they ought to be. There's this reverence for God. And and just like the quote from David Wells, then God is over them. God 
is outside of them, and God holds it all together, and they're conscious of that all the time, and it changes then how they act. You know when somebody is not acting this way? When a Christian especially, when they're not acting this way, they're acting as if God doesn't exist, and you can tell the difference. But the second feature of these mature women is that they're not slanderers. In reality, this means that they're not false accusers. And that's false accusers, actually, that's the translation that goes all the way back to William Tyndale. But both both terms, false accuser and slander, it means the same thing. But for us today, I think, if I was to ask you, so what do you think about slander? Slander seems seems almost like to be, oh, it's that high, very rare, extreme case. That's what slander is. The lawyers have told me slander is very difficult to prove in court. So it just seems very rare, rarefied case. You know, it's, it's kind of, you know, to, to ask if some online speech is slanderous, it's kind of like asking a fish if water is wet. You know, of course it is. But slander's kind of everywhere, but then it's kind of nowhere. And, and so I think then, if, if you just take the phrase false accusations, then that's, that's actually a little clearer, I think, for our purposes. A false accusation. Because then, then that's easy for us to do. It's easy for, for older women to do. It's easier for all Christians to do. Because many Christians and many Christian women do this frequently. What is a false accusation? Well, it's simply to accuse others of things that are not true or to accuse them of things that cannot be known to be true. Think about that one. You're either accusing them of things that are not true or things that cannot be known to be true. Mature women don't do this. Mature Christian women don't do this. They don't make those, they don't say those kinds of things. They don't make those kinds of false accusations. They don't shoot their mouth off. I mean, there's a huge difference. You know that if they're not slandering others in your presence, then chances are they're not going to slander you when they're out of your presence. And you know the difference when somebody is slandering someone else, gossiping about someone else to you. You just know, oh, well, <laughs> yeah, imagine what they're saying about me when, they're, when, they're, you know, when they leave here, right? So, so we see, start to see some of the characters. Now, the third thing that is mentioned in verse 3 is slaves to much wine. Now, this picture that Paul is painting fills out the mature woman's ability to calm her nerves without needing to self-medicate. I think that's what's really behind this. She can calm her nerves without needing to self-medicate. See, such mature women are not slaves to much wine. It's interesting that this is actually, sadly, it is a stereotype. You know, the so-called wine ant. The woman who is the closet alcoholic. The woman in the old Rolling Stones song who needs mother's little helper. 
Nobody knows what that is. It's okay. It's a young crowd. It's even old for me, so. It's not saying that medicines, to varying degrees, it's not saying they can't be taken, but it does mean that anything, alcohol, drugs, experiences, pixels, whatever it is, anything that you use to make you feel happy, that can become enslaving. Even, even if the thing itself is lawful. And biblically speaking, wine was lawful, but to be enslaved to it was not lawful. The mature woman can have a lawful use of such things, but it is clear that she is not controlled by them. And why would she want to be controlled by them? Well, that's what I'm arguing. There's, there's this need to help her to cope or to make her happy. Well, the older woman doesn't need that. She's got Jesus. She's content in Christ. She's actually ordered and oriented towards Jesus Christ. She doesn't need wine to help her to cope to get through. So those are characteristics then of the older woman. So we've got the older man, the older men kind of providing an example. The older women are following in that pattern, in that example, exemplifying the same virtues. And that's, that's your starting point. But then verses 4 and 5 speak then to the results. And the result is that the mature women have their own example to set for the younger women. So you just see there's, there's examples all over the place. And just as older men provide the example for all men and women in the church, so older women do so for the younger women. And of such mature women, then Paul says, they are to teach what is good. End of verse 3 there. Very important. See that phrase. End of verse 3. They are to teach what is good. That's how the ESV translates it. Now the Greek word here, not to sound clever, but this is important. The Greek word here is a compound word. And it's very important. I think you need to be very clear in hearing me here. It is not that these women are teachers interchangeably with pastor teachers. That is not what is taught here. The compound word is literally goodness teachers. Goodness teachers. Not teachers generically or teachers all-encompassingly, but they're goodness teachers. Now my understanding is then this means that these mature women, they teach a vast compass of things. They teach homemaking skills we're going to get into, but more than that. However, they are not focused on teaching the text criticism of Isaiah and the Dead Sea Scrolls at Qumran. Like, that's not, that's not what it's about. It's not teaching minutia of theology. It's not teaching in that way. That's not the emphasis here in the church. That's not the kind of teaching. Rather, it is the teaching of virtue. It is the teaching of goodness. It's the teaching, it's, it's virtue teaching. It is the kind of gospel teaching that produces heart change, that produces character transformation. That is what is going on in the church. That's the kind of teaching that goes on. And so, in, in the teaching of what is good, that's going to include teaching the Bible. 
Because teaching the Bible is the source of goodness. How do you change? How do you grow as a Christian? Well, you've got to study God's Word. And that's part, then, of these older women teaching and training younger women. So they're going to teach the Bible. Now, it's not teaching in competition with pastors. Be very clear. This is, this is not teaching that presumes to be in the same vein as the pastoral office. It's not. It's different. And this is very important because there's, there's people out there that say, oh, well, just, just because a woman is teaching the Bible, well, there she, she's doing pastoral work, therefore she should be a pastor. It's not the case. It's not what Paul's arguing here. Rather, this is virtue teaching. It's teaching especially focused on what we might call biblical spirituality. And that's what we have in this church. We have women's Bible studies, women's events, women's retreats. The Bible is taught, but it's not so that then, okay, well, we can think about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. The point is that women receiving the teaching from other women would grow in a knowledge of Christ, that their character would be transformed, that their identity in Christ would be clarified, and that they would savor union and communion with Christ. Sounds pretty good to me. But that's the focus. It's on that kind of teaching, that biblical spirituality. And so then this virtue teaching of biblical spirituality is for other women only. It's a good and godly practice of teaching, but is not for mixed groups or teaching men. Paul's clear about this. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And in the public gathering of the church, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. That's 1 Timothy 2.12 and 1 Corinthians 14.34. Now, the quietness or the silence required here, it's not referring to all speech all the time. It's referring to silence when it comes to public teaching of the church mixed group. Now, this shouldn't imply that a godly, mature woman must somehow not participate in the one and others of the New Testament out of fear that somehow she might be talking. No, that's not what it's referring to. But we have to be clear on this. Now, recently, I spoke with someone, uh, not from this church, and she said how she was concerned for herself and her young girls, uh, and, and her thought was that that they weren't allowed to, uh, the term was, they weren't allowed to have a voice in their previous church. And, and so they're going to a church with a woman co-pastor and women publicly teaching mixed groups of men and women and, and having the discussion, and then I came away from it, and I thought it, it was just too bad that it went that way for this person because she did have a voice as a church member. Now, maybe that wasn't encouraged, maybe it wasn't exercised, but she had a voice. But she then, because she thought she didn't have the voice that she had, she wanted to have a voice in roles that weren't open to her. And so often the case, people don't exercise what they have, and then they start wanting what then is prohibited from them. And I should add that this happens to men, too, actually. 
They think that, oh, well, if I can't preach and teach in the church, I don't have a voice in the church. Well, it's not true. There are all kinds of ways to practice the 59 one another's in the Bible. You've got, you got lots to do. There's lots to say. There's lots of voicing to go on. Do that first. I'll add one more thing. If a person's church is only a performance, and, I mean, everybody does really good here, but, you know, we're not big on high performance quality here. But if you're used to going to a church where there's lots of lights and high performance value, if that's all it is as a performance, then the only voice that matters is the voice that is up front being a performer. So that means you have to be either the worship leader or you've got to be the preacher. And so all this talk, okay, we've got to have women, women pastors, often it's the case they're in churches where there is only one voice in the performance. And they're saying, well, if I can't do that, I guess I can't do anything. And so they pursue or are encouraged to pursue something that is prohibited from them and they're not encouraged in all the opportunities that already exist. Same for men, too. The church isn't a show. You don't have to be the band leader. And if you think that's how it works here, it doesn't. It's not that way. At Calvary Grace, we equip women to be kalos didaskali, goodness teachers. And they are great. They, they do. They teach. They point to Christ. They show the source of the Scriptures. And they themselves, all the women's Bible study teachers, for example, they are very teachable from the elders. They are definitely learning from the Word, but also they also are appreciative when others invest in them. So they're doing that in these Bible studies. But even for all the women, even the younger women. They're, they're valued church members who speak with all members in the one another's of love and fellowship. So we all participate in that. Now, what we see then here, again, though, the, the highlight, and I want, don't want you to miss the highlight, the highlight is of the virtues and character first. So here, the older woman's virtues and character are passed on. Look at verse 4. And so train the young women. You, you can't miss the and so. I know it's easy to skip over in the English. But, but, it, but you could expand it and say, and, and in this manner, and in this style, and in this approach, train the younger women. You see, the character of a godly, mature woman is more important than her ability as a public communicator. Joyce Meyer, false teacher, one of the best-selling authors in the world, her on TV all over. If you don't know who she is, praise the Lord. She's a false teacher. She's ungodly in what she believes, and she's ungodly in her manner. And so it doesn't matter then if she is a skilled public orator, which she is. Her oratory has all the oratorical skill of any public communicator.
but that does not qualify her as a pastor, and she is not a good example of a mature woman in a Titus 2 way. And her teaching is damning to people all over the world. Prayed for Russia, certainly in the continent of Africa. You know, any time I hear from pastors from other countries, they'll talk about the prosperity gospel, and they say, who's the best-selling author? Joyce Meyer. It's wicked. So there is then a style of training. And so, in this godly manner, in this godly decorum, in this godly style, train the young women, and then we're going to have then the content of this training. To love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Somebody's alarm's going. Must mean I've got to hurry up or we're all going to boil. Well, you'll just have to persevere. These virtues, they are passed on to the young women. And you, and you just think, all of these virtues do not necessarily come naturally or easily, we could say. Like, why, why does he have to teach about it? Because it's not easy to do. So they require teaching. They require training. You would think that loving your husband would come naturally. You know, maybe, maybe you know, at your wedding, your honeymoon, for the first two days, maybe, maybe the first day and a half. But then it gets hard. Why? Because the husband is a sinner. So that's why younger women need training. Because it, it, it's easy when, oh yeah, he's very lovable. But what happens when, surprise, surprise, he's not lovable? You know. See, now this is where i got to be careful because I get country music songs coming into my head that I want to share. You know, what you're going to do with a cowboy when he won't saddle up and ride away? You know, it's like, got to live with this guy. What happens when he's unlovable? Well, you need training. You might think that children are easy to love. Oh, these cherub faces. You're obviously going to love them. But every parent knows, ah, sometimes they're not very lovable. Sometimes it's really hard to love your kids. So you need training. You need to have training in how to do that. How to love another sinner. And then there's all the healthy virtues which Paul then is highlighting in the letter. You know, he's telling them, train the young woman to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, verse 5. See now, this, this, this self-control, this is the second of three mentions of the virtue of self-control in this section. I think even the better term, or my own preferred term, would be self-government. Self-government. See, the problem with some of our thinking about self-control is that we assume that it's always negative and reactionary. I've got to exercise self-control when I'm faced with temptation. It's negative and reactionary. Well, that's true. But it's not all. When we are self-governing, it means that outside forces are not dictating to us how to act, how to feel. 
It means you regulate yourself. You regulate your emotions. You regulate your desires. You don't need someone else to do it. And you're doing it because you're looking to God and He's giving you the power to govern yourself. What do we teach our kids? What's one of the key early lessons you should be teaching your children? How to regulate their emotions. You can't just flip out. You've got to, you've got to calm, calm yourself down. You don't just need mom or dad calming you down. You need to calm yourself down. And of course, what, without self-government, what do you need? Well, you need government from the outside. More rules, more laws, more external control. So in a world where there is no self-control, right? Calgary, Jern Stampede, no self-control. Well, you're going to have more outside control. And that's what we're seeing in society. Young women need self-government. And if they don't, they're going to be controlled by mean girls or by TikTok fads or by the praise or condemnation of men. They're even going to be governed by the whims of their changing emotions. It's just an awful way to live. And there's so many young women that live like that because nobody's trained them to be self-governing. Young Christian women ought to have self-government so that they are vigorous in some things and restrained in others. Henry Alford comments on the Greek text in the 19th century. You don't care about that. But in his translation, he uses the term discreet. I think it's a beautiful word. A woman is self-controlled. She's discreet. It's, he thinks discreet is better than self-restrained. Because he said, he said, quote, self-restrained gives the idea that it, he says, it destroys spontaneity. And it brushes off, so to speak, the bloom of the best of female graces. So being discreet doesn't mean you're always pulling back. It just means you know how to act in every situation. It doesn't mean you always got to take the step back. It just means you're, you're, there's that discretion. Um, discretion was one of, the, one, of the, one of the daughters in the House Beautiful in Pilgrim's Progress. You can read it and just the questions she asks of Christian. It's, it's really good in that section. With this discretion, the young woman has purity. Purity. She is pure. How can a sinner be pure? How can a young woman who's a sinner be pure? There's only one way. She has to have her sins washed. How? Washed in the blood of the Lamb. It's the only way. But if they're washed in the blood of the Lamb, then she can be pure. What a hope. Today, you know, the so-called purity movement of a number of years ago is very maligned today. But the problem is not with being pure or pursuing purity. It's, it's the issue is that no sinner can be pure without lamb's blood. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And trying to be pure by pure willpower never works. And so you can put a bracelet on, a purity bracelet or whatever the trinket is, that will not do it. 
You must have the Holy Spirit. You must have your sins washed in the blood of the Lamb, past, present, and future. Only then can you stand before the Lord and say, I am pure. When a young woman, with discretion, looks upon the Savior who died for her impurities, then she won't return to them because she'll have love and gratitude to her Savior. She won't go to them. And for the young woman, even a young woman sitting here, the young woman who feels dirty, you feel dirty, she can be pure in the eyes of God, whose opinion is the only one that ultimately really matters. The girl who feels dirty can be pure in the eyes of God because Jesus' blood washes all the filth away and no man can stop it. So so it is gone. It is washed away. And before God, she's pure. And then she can stop listening to herself and her interpretation of her status and start listening to God and His interpretation of her pure status. That's liberating. And the world has nothing like that to offer. Nothing. Nothing even close. Only the gospel offers purity and the forgiveness of sins. Well, you've been waiting for this because the next training area is for the young woman to learn to keep house. She's to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, Actually, there's all kinds that you're waiting for. You're just like, okay, what's it going to say now? Uh, let's, gotcha moment. Uh, but she must learn to keep house, and I choose that phrase particularly. This is a unique word, and it's a little bit more different than the common home worker word. The point that Paul is making is that young women need training in how to keep a home. And that's a key priority. How, how does she keep a home? How does, she, how does she guard it? Not necessarily with a shotgun, although some of the gals here might be able to wield a shotgun. I don't know. Uh, it's Canada. I, can't, I, I shouldn't be saying the pro-gun talk. Yeah, anyways, get a laugh out of you anyways. What's she guarding? What's she keeping? She's guarding the order of the home. She's keeping the hospitality of the home, the supply of the home, and the function of the home. That's what she is guarding and keeping. Now, a husband has a general responsibility of the home and the marriage as the head of the home. And and Ephesians 5, 23, the husband is the head of the woman as... Christ is the head of the church. That fundamental principle, I encourage you to read through the latter part of Ephesians 5 this afternoon. So the wife has a direct responsibility for keeping the home. So in the context of the priesthood of all believers, there's a sense in which the wife offers her work as worship to God by providing this good order and this beautiful function of the home. And a, and, a, and a young woman can get practiced in that a little bit before she's married, and she can then be prepared to do it when she's married, and she's got this sinner to live with, right? So it's maybe good to get a little training beforehand. Uh, this is work. This is work. 
If it was easy, she wouldn't need training, right? Now, some women will work at providing this order, and they'll work in unpaid ways outside the home as they're able. Some women may work at keeping the home while also working outside the home for paid, like the Proverbs 31 woman. It's all work, and everyone ought to be busy, and they are. Some get paid for work, and some don't. But the point here is that every woman is, every, every, in these, younger, these younger women in these marriage relationships, every woman is a keeper of the home as a priority. And they will need help and training from mature women. They need help to do that. Okay, a couple more. Two more virtues which young women are to be trained in are the ones that don't come easy. She needs training to be kind. And why is that? Why must women, young women, be trained to be kind? Because it's easy for them to be unkind, to cut with her words, right? It's easy for her to do that. She can't use her fists, so she's tempted to use her words to fight. So she needs to be trained to be kind like her Savior. Remember his prayer? Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. That is kindness. And with that, young women then need help and training to submit to their own husbands. Again, referencing Ephesians 5, 23. Yes, they have a voice. They definitely have a voice. They're disciples too. They need training, however. They need training to submit to their own husband. Not to all husbands, not to all men in the same way, but to, but to their own marriage covenant head. Now, this submission can be hard, but it is good. Because when a young woman submits to her husband, especially when her husband is not perfect, you know that she's doing it in the power of the Spirit, in submission to God. You know that she's doing it not because it's easy, not because she's a doormat. She's doing it because she's looking to God first. You see, young women need help and training in submitting to another sinner. And when a wife does that, then she is acting out a living parable of her submission to her Lord Christ. She's reflecting the redemption of fallen creation. And what do I mean by that? Well, before the fall into sin, Adam was formed first, then Eve. You know, and... Paul references that in 1 Timothy 2.13 even. And this established then the ideal pattern of this this complementary order. Equality of men and women, but not interchangeability. Male leadership, female application of leadership together in a common mission. Together taking dominion and subduing the earth as they bear the very image of God. Genesis 1.26-28. Now sin, what did sin do? Sin marred the pattern. So you've got divided loyalties, you've got suspicion, you've got oppression, you've got manipulation, you've got subversion, all that entered in. But when Christ redeems two sinners, I've done quite a bit of actually premarital, even pre-engagement counseling the last little while. When Christ redeems two sinners and they're married together, they can redeem fallen creation. The woman submits to her own husband as she submits to Christ. 
Gospel love for sinners drives her submission. It's not a universal submission, just as we're not called to submit to everyone and everything, but we submit to Christ alone as our Lord and Savior. She submits to her own husband, the sinner, with a submission that has been prepared and positioned by her submission to her own Savior, Jesus Christ, her Lord. And then in such manner like that, again, that style, that manner, the Word of God is not reviled. If she abandons that manner and she's not going to submit, then the Word of God is reviled. When it's out of order and out of step, the Christian testimony of the marriage and of the woman is ruined. And that's likely what was happening in Crete. Christian women were acting like the world and were lying. They were beaking off at their husbands. They were acting in ungodly ways. And no wonder then things needed to be put into order, as Paul told Titus in chapter 1. Man, we're all dying here and running out of time. Last, I'm just going to mention, there's more, there's more to say, but I've just got to mention the young men. What about the young men? They get one line. That's it. Oh, it's such a man-centered book. No, they only get one line. Does this mean that men are overlooked and ignored? The young men are to copy the patterns of godliness. You see it there. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. That's it. Why do they need... Why do they need to do this? They've got to copy the patterns of the older men. Why? Because they have to become those older men. They have to become the kind of men who can be copied. So the big overarching instruction for young men is that they be self-controlled. In this case, the sense is not only self-government, but being sound-minded. Young men are tempted to be like Don Quixote. You know, charging off in all directions. They can overestimate themselves in some ways, and they can underestimate themselves in others. They can act like they're invincible in some things and act like they have no agency in others. Oh, what can I do? I can't do nothing. They can be brutal tyrants to a young new wife, or they can act like she's his mother needing to baby him. And that's the... That's the same in Crete, and it's the same in Calgary. Young men need to think of themselves and all around them with sober judgment. They need to control their extreme thinking. They need to have sound, a self-controlled approach to life. That's the sense of the Greek word here. And because Paul only mentions one thing for the young men, you can guess that their one-track mind needs only one thing to focus on, right? Some of the women know what I'm talking about. There's only one thing. Just, just give me one thing. Well, there's your one thing. It's this self-controlled ordering of their thoughts, their passions, their pursuits, ordering under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Just that one thing. And if you do that, you'll move from being a young man to being a mature man that others can follow. When a young man has that kind of focus, he becomes very reliable. So that then a young woman can see that he is the kind of man that she can lean on, that she can partner with, that she can keep a home with. 
And if he isn't working on that sober, sound-mindedness, then he won't be marryable, and he'll be adrift, and he'll stay adrift, and he'll stay single, or he'll be the serial dater who refuses to commit. Jordan Peterson, my son and I were talking about Jordan Peterson's comments, addressing Christian churches as an outsider. He's not a Christian. And he just said, the churches need to help young men. And I think Paul has the remedy right here. Young men need to read the Bible, and they need to be self-controlled. I close with this. You're ready for it to be done. Take a day, any day. This is everybody. Take a day. If you were to record every word you say or every thought you think, would it mesh with the instructions here, or would it be way out of sync? If you profess to be a Christian, you can't just say whatever you want or think whatever you want. Will you bring your mind and your passions and your tongue under the Lordship of Christ? That is what Paul is driving at here. Lots of people, they're talking and writing about King Jesus, but I see them not submitting to his Lordship, not being sober-minded. And before you like or you share that aggressive Facebook post or the passive-aggressive one, you know the one I'm talking about, you've got to ask yourself, whether this is a sober-minded action or are you doing it because it releases passions. It makes you feel good to blast somebody. This is what is happening. This is a crisis in the church. Is Christians, have lo- they're losing control. Take the one-day test and then confess your sins to God and ask Him, to renew your mind with the mind of Christ. That's the first application, second, and then we're done. If you're a man or a woman here today, to be clear, you're only one or the other, just to say, just just the question, are you pursuing the virtuous life? Not virtue signaling. Like, are you pursuing what it is to have that kind of virtue? And if you're doing so, as best as you can, you know, as best you can tell, are you handing it on? Or is it just about you? Are you handing it on? Are you passing the baton? Are you sharing what you've been given? Are you putting yourself in a position to be able to serve and minister to others? Most importantly, to a spouse, to a family, but also to this spiritual family, which is the church. Let's this church be a pocket of virtue in a cesspool of wickedness. Let it be so. Not virtue signaling, but true virtue. And then we will shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation with God outside of us, over us, and holding us together in all soundness, in a healthy type of order, then we will glorify Him in this generation. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would teach us, wound and heal us, illuminate us, but make us healthy and whole in your sight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we sing to the true and living God. Please rise. Consider 
the royal wedding of Revelation 19 as we depart. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out. What did they cry? Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. That is what we are being woven into, friends, the righteous deeds of the saints. Let us go forth and lead that righteous, virtuous life under the blood of the Lamb. Go in peace. You're dismissed.